I invite you to open your Bibles to a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 2. We'll give the sound booth an opportunity to adjust here for a moment. It's not their fault. Some foolish person last week who preached forgot to turn the mic on at all. I won't name him, but it wasn't Camper. Anyway, um, Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin our reading in verse 12, continuing through the end of chapter 2. Hear the word of our Lord. And being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother... Uh, by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that, the, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time. Uh, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene, the word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, Heavenly Father, we come this day with thanksgiving, celebrating this season, uh, the gift that you have given to us in the person of Christ. We now come to honor him by listening to the voice for you through your servant John revealed to us that he, Christ Jesus, is the word incarnated who came and dwelt among us for a while and who himself promised to never leave nor forsake us. You have revealed him to, your, to us through your word. You have spoken by your spirit and pray even now that that revelation would be something not only that we would be renewed in our remembrance in our mind, uh, but that reality, that remembering would shape our hearts and therefore our lives. Lord, speak to us as we consider this passage that you have recorded, that we ourselves might be blessed by your word and that your word would do what you have promised, which is to shape us to become more and more like Christ, building us up and building us together until all reach full maturity in him. To you be all praise, Lord, and be all honor and glory as we honor you now by listening for your spirit to speak even as we consider this word. In Christ we pray. Amen. 
The day that the Magi arrived and crowded the, the door of Joseph and Mary's humble dwelling was one of sheer surreality. These stargazing Gentile noblemen on a religious quest coming into this humble home and bowing before their now toddler son and worshiping and giving honor to him and giving gifts to him that were fit for a king or fit for a prophet, priest, and king because they gave him the incense which is reflective of a, a, a ministering priest. They gave him the, uh, uh, the myrrh, which is reflective of a martyred prophet. And they gave him cold, gold, which was reflective of a, a reigning king. And these men, they came and they bowed and, and they gave this worship, which itself must have been uh, quite uh, discomforting for uh, this young couple. And the story they told, they'd been journeying for quite a long time, following a star that they had been studying for some time that led them to the right place at the right time that they would come and encounter this particular family. What an incredible story that they shared with them there. We can only imagine uh, what that festivity must have been like in in that small place, this, this horde of people and all of those who were with them. Now these men have gone. And the home is quiet. I imagine that Joseph and Mary, neither of them slept much uh, that night. They were probably exhausted and, and yet still wide awake. The whole episode was just so incredibly exhilarating. We don't know how much time had passed. We, we don't know exactly when the angel of the Lord uh, appeared to Joseph. We don't know if that was the first night that, you know, the, 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 the Magi checked out uh, at noon and, you know, some time passed and, and came that evening, or whether it was the next night or, or sometime soon after. But we do know that it certainly was sometime soon after because the Magi themselves had been told in a dream that, uh, that they are not to go back the same way. They're not to go back to Herod uh, because they, Herod wanted to take the information that they had and, and, and go on, on a rampage. And so they went home by another route. It wouldn't have taken long for Herod to figure out that he was duped, and so we know that the angel of the Lord had to come sometime relatively quickly, and he spoke to Joseph and said to him, as we see in verse 13, rise and take your child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. You know, I think what I like best about this portion of the nativity narrative is that it connects Christmas with real life. It brings us face to face with the world that we live in. See, it's very easy for several weeks during December every year to kind of withdraw from reality into a a, a, a mental world of, of make-believe, a world of, of nostalgia. And it's not entirely wrong. There's, there's much to celebrate. It's a creativity of, of the mind. It's a, it's a respite from, uh, from a lot of things. 
And, and it's not wrong for, for this reason, because for many, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, it's a season that allows us to express our longing for something more. It's a time that we are able to sort of imagine a world that has been promised, a world that we desire, but a world that is not yet here. And so for these weeks, we we celebrate the the Christmas uh, season. Not only us, but a good part of the world celebrates this Christmas season. Whether they celebrate the God's gift of sending Jesus or not, there is this cultural shift to just kind of change and to withdraw and to move into uh, a narrative or to something similar to the narrative of Christmas. But the problem that we all face and we'll face again in a couple of weeks if we're not even experiencing it all right now is that we, we don't really live in a, a simple world of a Norman Rockwell or of Thomas Kincaid painting, do we? We live in a world that is filled with troubles and pain and evil. And all of that is reflected in this particular passage, even as beautiful as it is about the story that God has given to us, His Son, and preserved it, and, and, and the part of the place that it plays in God's redemptive plan. We're allowed to escape into a nice respite, but sooner or later we come face to face with the reality. The idea of of escaping mentally may be nice, but ultimately it's of no value because reality does come back. And even if that's escaping is into religious things, even with the gifts of God, even with God's provision and God's providence, we we still face difficulty. We still face hardship and being unsettled. I mean, think for a moment just of, of, the, of the primary flow of the story. We tend to fly over it over during this time of the year, but the beautiful part of the story is God and His great providence warned Joseph and Mary in a dream that they need to get out of where they were so that they would be protected from the ones that was going to try to destroy them. And he provided for them, and they went, and he protected them. They went where they were supposed to go. Then they were notified to go someplace else. Then he notified them, don't even go here. But, you know, so we see God's providence at work, God's provision, God's love carrying them through the, the dangers of their world. But if you're like me, you probably don't stop and think of often enough about what all that entailed, the the way that it upsets life, the unsettling and uh, of, of day-to-day routine. I mean, they were sent out. They, they had to leave. They had to evacuate. Their, their, their mental state was probably not totally unlike, you know, those who have to leave their homes because of a, a warning of a hurricane. In other words, you need to go. You need to get out. You need to leave everything behind. You need to go someplace else. You need to settle. You need to stay. You need to stay safe. And, and then sooner or later, you'll be able to shift and you'll be able to go someplace else. But th- just think about the, the inconvenience at the very least. The hardship of having to travel, the hardship of having to travel with a, a young child, uh, the hardship of not being settled, the hardship of not being able to put down roots for any length of time. Those things, when we experience them, are very, very difficult, and we gloss over those. At least I gloss over those when I I look at the story, because the greatness of God is so 
overwhelming. It, it grabs my attention, but it doesn't negate the reality of living in a world that has troubles and has pain and has evil. And the very reason that they had to go do these things is because there is evil in this world. And the reality is every one of us needs to come face to face with the world that we live in. We need to live in light of reality. Even those of us who live in the world's largest living history museum. We can't hide forever. But what's also great about this passage is because it tells us, not only does it connect, it connects Christmas with the, the world that we live in. And this passage shows us, I think, two broad things. First, it tells us that all of humanity is in need of rescue. It's the foundational point. But the ultimate point is this, is this story reminds us that God has initiated an unstoppable rescue plan. And so we'll begin with this, just to be reminded, perhaps for some to hear anew. All of humanity is in need of rescue. Where do we see that in the story? Well, we, we see it in, in part in, in the people who are listed here. Let's begin with the Magi. They are Persian scholar astrologers, probably of nobility and of wealth. The Magi traveled from Persia, present-day Iraq, to, to Israel uh, following the star. Uh, it was not out of some vain curiosity. They, they were not out geocaching on a hobby. They were on a quest, on a specific purpose. Uh, they were out to find the one who would be born, that God, not their God, but the God, was going to come and send to be the king who would reign. These are men who had everything that life has to offer. They had wealth, they had education, they had power. They, obviously, they had friends because they, they, they hung out in a group. And yet, what they longed to do was to find this king, to honor and to worship this king, and to serve this king. The Magi show us that wise people everywhere and people of every religion will only find true, lasting, and ultimate satisfaction when they come to Jesus. Paraphrasing Augustine, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And so we see them as reflective of the entire world. Though somebody has everything, they still are in need of something, and that something that they sought because that something they needed was God's gift of the King, of, of Jesus, and they came to him. We see all humanity is in need of rescue, not just in the broadest sense, but in very specific sense, because there is evil in this world. And in this passage... In his appearances in Scripture, Herod is the embodiment, the personification of evil. Herod ethnically was probably Arabian. Religiously, he was Jewish, and politically, he was Roman. Historically, he was a monster. The stories of Herod are, are many, but the ones that stand out to me, Josephus, the historian, uh, tells the story, says this, is that Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death 
uh, that he commanded that a large group of notable local leaders, the beloved local, local leaders, would be rounded up and held in the Hippodrome and then executed upon the time of Herod's death. The reason he thought is, I'm not particularly lovable. People won't be sad when I go. So we'll make them sad, not because I go, but we'll make them sad when I go so that everybody else will look and it'll look like they're all sad because I'm gone. And so he had them rounded up for the purpose of having executed. Now, it didn't happen because they were set free by somebody else, but that was the nature of this particular guy. Going even further, many of you are aware of this, some perhaps not, Herod even had three of his own sons executed because he was afraid that they might be a threat to his reign. This is the nature and the character of this man who has devised this plan to search out and destroy, search out and kill every child that was born in a particular region within a particular time frame. And because of the nature of the person, because of things that he did in his own life, there's no doubt that he would do this, and history records that he, he did do this. Even when he had died, his son that was not executed, Archelaus, who took over for him as the king, we see that evil continues. The Romans said, thinking that there was no one person capable of filling Herod's shoes, or maybe they just didn't want to vest uh, that much power in one particular person, they divided his kingdom, his, his governorship, uh, up uh, into three different territories, and Archelaus was given the reign over, over Judea. And Archelaus ruled only for two years before the Romans replaced him because he was incompetent. But he was incompetent, and even the Romans thought that he was too cruel because he carried out his father's plans. He continued to search out and to destroy and to kill innocent children in order to eradicate any potential threat to the family reign. Now, one of the things that's interesting notes is kind of a side note, but uh, one of the things that uh, one of the commentators that I, I read noted, but I thought it was worth sharing is this, is that if you look in, in the scriptures, until the time the Magi arrived to worship uh, Jesus, Herod is known as king. After the, Herod, after the Magi leave, Herod is no longer referred to, never again referred to as king in the scriptures. Because Herod is evil. He's the embodiment of evil. And evil exists in this world. And evil people exist in this world. And people, we'll call them innocent people, people who have not done anything to warrant their suffering at the hands of evil, suffer and die. We see it listed even in here with the, the slaughter of, of the innocents that are here in, in this passage. The whole two years and under rule. One thing is beneficial is it, it gives us an idea of Jesus' age at this point in time. But it was also chosen because Herod wanted a wide margin for error. He wanted to make sure they didn't just get the one, but if there was any chance. And so he went for more than what the Magi had told him. 
Scholars tell us that Bethlehem being a small village, not many people living there. Nevertheless, based on the historical records, scholars said, considering the population, it's estimated that 20 young boys were killed just in that little village alone because of Herod. Those people, their families, were in need of protection. They're in need of deliverance. They're in need of rescue because we live in an evil world. They need a deliverer. This is the backdrop of their world, and you don't have to look very far. Turn on the news, pretty much any news station, and it'll give you reasons to cringe of the evil and the brokenness and the ugliness that exists all around us. And so what we see reflected in that story is true for us today as well. All of humanity is in need of rescuing. But the overarching narrative of this passage and of this entire season is that God is in control and he has provided an answer. He is delivering a people from darkness, death, and doom. We see the fact that God is in control in the way we went throughout this particular passage, in part because of the prophecies that are fulfilled here. We see three that are specifically referenced, every one of them, of the incidents that are taking place that we're told they fulfilled the prophecy. We look at verses 13 through 15, begin there, the whole start about the need to rise and take the child uh, and flee to Egypt. If you look in verse 15, uh, when Joseph and Mary went and, and fled e- in Egypt, uh, we're, we're told this in, in the last sentence there. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Naturally, Jesus wasn't going to go there. But because of the circumstances, in order to prove that God was in control of all things, in order that we would be able to trust him, this was part of their journey. There was a purpose in it, even in their hardship. We look on a little bit further in verses 16 through 18, where Herod is going to, to kill the children. We see that that was also predicted in verse 17 and 18, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children who are no more. Even in the ugliest things, things that are acts of evil, God is still at work. And then we see the final prophecy that is at the end, toward the end of this passage, when Joseph was told, okay, now you can go back to Israel, concerned that uh, now Archelaus is in control. Uh, and so the spirit said, all right, go someplace close. And so they, they moved to Galilee to a town called Nazareth. And verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Three times, three things that had been predicted long, long ago, all intertwined in order to point specifically to the fact that Jesus was the one who was promised. Not only is he one who was promised, but he was promised for a reason. And the reason that he was promised is that he would be the deliverer 
that people would be delivered from the evil and the brokenness and the ugliness in this world. God is in control and he is working his plan out whether his plan makes sense to me or not. I need to remind myself, and over and over and over again, we see this as case, and we see very three specific evidences of it right here. And then if you even build a little bit more on the whole idea of Jesus shall be called the Nazarene, that itself has significant implications for the plan that God is, is, was working out at, at that point in time. Because the fact that he would be called, uh, called a Nazarene had significant implications for the Jesus being relatable or connecting to all people. See, Nazareth was not what you would call an, an impressive place to live. At the time, Nazareth, or to be called a Nazarene, would be their N-word of the day. In order to kind of downplay or to try to slow down uh, the growth of early Christianity. It was called that, that Nazarene sect. To be called a Nazarene was essentially to be called a, a, a redneck. Very unimpressive. Who wants to be one except those who are rednecks if you've lived in redneck communities? And they're proud of that, which is sort of appropriate, isn't it? Because to be called a Nazarene sect, to be called by the name of the one who is Nazarene, everybody else despises it and the ones who have it. And that's essentially the same of Christianity. The world may despise Christ, but we say, wow, what a great name. We'll be called Christians. We'll be called after Christ, regardless of what others think. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is reflective of being born in the line of David, David's royal city in Bethlehem. And so Jesus was royal, so the greatest of nobles who would desire for the greatness, they would go before him and bow before him. But he was also came out of Nazareth, Redneckville, so that even the lowest would realize he's not beneath them. And so God was working out these prophecies in order that Jesus would not only accomplish the purpose, but he relates to the totality of humanity so that all would be able to come to him and find their deliverance in him. And I look at these things and I see this is evidence that God is in control, that God's plan is immutable, the big theological word, which means you can't mute, can't press the mute button on God's plan. He's going to work it out regardless of what you want, what I want, what the world wants. All of this is unfolding in this very familiar passage before. The darkness of the backdrop and the inconvenience, the ugliness and the evil that we can identify with. Which reveals to us the need for deliverance. Which makes all the more amazing God's plan and his gift, his provision in the person of Christ. But it still leaves a question, doesn't it? If God worked all those things out and he was working to deliver his people, then why does evil continue? Why does God allow evil to continue? We see evil evident here in the slaughter of the innocents. We see the slaughter of the innocents throughout our land, throughout the world, in, in, various, in various different ways. We, we see evil express itself in, in so many different ways. And we wonder, why is evil still here? Why didn't God do away with it? And I'm not going to be able to give that complete answer to you this morning, but I, I do want you to be able to, to look at it from a, another perspective here. 
Because the question of why is evil still present is not quite as simple as we would like for it to be. Certainly not as simple as I would like for it to be. Because I have to ask this question, where would I draw the line? Well, that seems to be a pretty straightforward answer, right? Cut off the evil. Cut out the evil people. Now, as we look at this passage, it's important again to recognize that Herod is the embodiment of the personification of evil. It's easy to look at this passage and see Herod as the, as the, as the gospel villain, which he is. But we need to see Herod with a different light. Not that he looks any better, but a light that reflects back on us. Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says this about Herod. Herod teaches us that the reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. And he goes on, he says, Herod is every man. And what he's saying there is that our nature, our natural instinct, even though we know that we are in need of deliverance, we are in need of being saved and rescued from all the evil and the brokenness that is around us, is that Herod reflects our nature. He just acted out on the nature that we are all born. Every one of us, by nature, is self-serving. Every one of us wants the world to revolve around us. We want what we want. We don't want what we don't want. We, this, is, this is the nature and when God says, no, here's the way things are to be ordered. Here's the way things are to be done. In many places, we, our nature, we, we cringe. That's the nature of humanity. Even those who are redeemed, even as Christians, sometimes that's the case. Just work through a legitimate uh, uh, study and consider what do the Ten Commandments call us to. And at some point or another... We might find ourselves saying, yeah, you know, yeah, how seriously does it take that? Look through the God's laws, and, and at some point or another, we find ourselves saying, yeah, he can't, doesn't, can't mean what it seems to, to mean there. You know what? It's a good suggestion. I will take it into consideration. I'll factor it in. I'll build my life my way with God's help as a suggestion. Even those who are many of the Christians, that's the whole thing that we need to continue to die to, is our, our, our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, our own, own desire. It's, it's, it, it's sin. It's within us. And if you have any questions, just think about what Jesus has done, taking the Sermon on the Mount uh, as the Sermon on the Mount, where he essentially takes God's law and says, okay, you know, you think that you have figured all of this out, so let's, uh, let's talk about what, the, what this word means. And, and so I'm just going to read um, two verses uh, of it for, uh, just to give an idea of how Herod is a reflection, perhaps an extreme reflection, but a reflection of every man. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said this, You've heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Certainly seems appropriate for us. We're talking about Herod and his uh, murdering and, and scheming of murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Where, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we read these things and we ask, have you ever had a short temper? 
You ever struggle with critical spirit? And Jesus says, okay, this is part of the broken nature, even that's, that he's working out, that we've got to die to. But it's just a matter of degree as to what Herod did and demonstrating that we have within us the capacity for evil that Herod lived out. And so let's go back to the question, where would you draw the line? Well, we're going to eliminate all evil and anyone who has evil within them. There's a problem here. If the world operated according to my simplicity, and I assume most of you resonated with my my solution of let's cut out all evil, if God was going to deal with it in that simple way, if he's going to deal and eradicate all evil, he'd have to get rid of all of us. Not much of a rescue, not a great plan. But the message of the season, the message of Christmas is that God had a plan. God had a better answer. And Paul uh, tells us kind of what it is in in Romans chapter 5. Just a couple of passages here. In Romans 5, verses 6 and 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus was born to die. We can never, 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 never separate Christmas from Easter, not if we are going to truly recognize the gift that God's given to us. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Immediately following that in Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. See, this is the plan of God that God was working out, that God was executing, that we celebrate this season. God is not saying, you know, move away from the evil of this world and just kind of huddle away in, in, in our little fantasy worlds. He's saying we live in this, this issue of evil. We have evil that's within, but here's what God is going to do to rescue the people from that evil. He would have a son born to identify with all people, born for the purpose of dying. He who is the king and is worthy of even foreign nations coming and bowing before him. And at the same time, he would take his authority and his kingship and he would become the servant of all, serving by laying his life down, serving even to the point of death, death on the cross. And for that reason, his name is exalted above every name in heaven and on earth because he's worthy, because of who he is and because of what he has done. So when we think of Christmas, we need to recognize this, that Jesus is the deposit, the guarantee, the surety, and the assurance of the fact that God has established, is at work, and is engaged in a rescue plan. It's not an escape from reality. It's a rescue within reality. And so when you think of this season, it's important because I... I, I, Many of you are going through struggles. There's something about this season. In one sense, is we can escape into this kind of idealistic world for a few weeks. And at the same time, studies tell us that there's more depression, more discouragement, the sense of alienation and loneliness, loneliness is, is much more heightened in this, perhaps because it's counter to the idealism of this season. And many of you are experiencing that. You may have real hardships, real difficulties, real real trials and and troubles in your life. It may be the brokenness of relationship, but one way or another, we we all know that we are in need of rescue. And the message of Christmas is not just something that was pretty that happened before and something that's going to happen, but it's happening even right now. 
And we need to be assured that God who created all things has a plan, He is in control, and He is working out His plan that is good for everyone who trusts in Him, everyone who would receive this gift that He gives us in Christmas. Because Christmas itself, borrowing from Hebrews, is the evidence of the things we hope for, a world where there is no evil. It is the assurance of things that we don't presently see. See, Christmas is our assurance. And whatever it is you're thinking, whatever it is you're celebrating this season, I want to encourage you to remember that. God is in control. He's working it out. Of this you can be certain. On this you can rest. In this you can have comfort. Father, we give thanks to you this day for your word, for your promise, for the promise fulfilled in Christ, for the promise that we are yet to experience, and yet as as certain as that which has happened before. For you are true to your word. You cannot deny yourself, and you love. And in your love you have sent your Son to redeem a people for yourself, that we might experience the joy that we long for and desire. As we sing to you, may we sing with joy. May we sing a praise to your name. For you are worthy to receive it, and we will find what we desire nowhere else except in you. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, for you first loved us in Christ, we pray. Amen.